For this podcast, I want to talk about the Bible and what it might say to us in the time of this quarantine. I think, first of all, when we talk about the Bible, we need to agree on what the Bible is not. I've grown up with the Bible. I grew up reading the Bible. And I think from, from my own childhood, I had many preconceived notions that still persist today. At one time, I thought the Bible was a magic book. You could just flip through it and find a passage, and, and, and somehow it would tell you what you needed to know to get through the day. And actually, there's so much good stuff in the Bible that's not necessarily a bad plan. I remember in seminary, they told us that the best version of the Bible to, to have is the one that you actually read. But then over time, I began to look at the Bible as a rule book, sort of like the Code of Alabama. Everything you need to know, you just sort of have to find it in there somewhere, dig it up, and there's a precept for living. But I'm not so sure that we don't suck the heart out of it when we read it that way as well. So it's not a magic book, and it's not really only a law book. Really, it's a library of books. I tell this to every third grader when I give them a Bible at St. Luke's that the that the Bible is just a library of text, like the Emmett O'Neill Library. It's got law books and reference books and poetry and history and drama and saga and letters and all sorts of things. And of course, peaking with the greatest story ever told, which is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So knowing that about the Bible is a good start, but we still need more. We need to do a little more digging or a little more thinking about what the Bible is before we can get it to speak to us in this time of quarantine. Now, fortunately, as, as Episcopalians, we actually inherit a great Bible reading tradition. You wouldn't know that uh, because most Episcopalians aren't very biblically literate. I think it's because we have a biblical, a Bible insert in our services. Uh, it was a well-intentioned idea to have a Bible insert so that you didn't have to lug around a Bible all the time. But in the, in the, the downside of that is that people don't read it. I like to say you can always tell a cradle Episcopalian because they can't find Isaiah if you held a gun to their heads. But we know the Bible more than we realize, and it's an, a tradition that we inherited, and it's called Scripture, Tradition, Reason. And it just works like this. You can start with any Bible verse, any Bible text, and you have to locate the context. I had an old friend once tell me that a text without a context is just a pretext. And the way that you locate the context is you look at the history and you walk around in their shoes, and I'll say some more about that in a minute. Then you look at what the church has always traditionally thought about that passage. What did they teach on it? What did people say about it early on? What has been handed down? And then you take a reasoned reflection upon the two of those. That's step three. I've got an example that I like to use for my ninth graders when I teach them confirmation class. It's really pretty fun. It's from Leviticus chapter 19. Now, Leviticus is not all that fun, uh, but I'm not sure that's one of your go-to books if you want to have a little Sunday morning inspiration. But Leviticus is a good exercise, and I'm going to give you an example from Leviticus chapter 19. Let's just say that you were digging in Leviticus and looking for a little... A uh, little morning cup of inspiration, and you land on verse 17. Here it goes. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur, incur guilt yourself. There we go. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, it's a little awkward even to read, but there's some good stuff in there. Love your neighbor as yourself, of course, and don't hate anybody. But if you keep reading, that's verse 17 and 18. But let me keep reading verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your animals breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seeds, nor shall you put on a garment made of two different materials. Well, hold on there. Now, it, now I have... 
plenty of friends who like to read the Bible literally and they believe it chapter and verse from beginning to end. I have one buddy who says the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Be that as it may, what you going to do uh, with the passage about not wearing two different kinds of material? So, using the method of scripture tradition reason you can do this. First of all, we believe that Leviticus was very, very important for God's people uh, as they were beginning to order themselves into a nation and head into their promised land. Uh, It had important uh, boundaries and precepts and markers for them. And Leviticus chapter 19 is one of these. Loving your neighbor as yourself is a pretty universal thing. The golden rule uh, has been handed down uh, from the very beginning, and Jesus taught it himself, and it has always been something that has been valued by people of faith. So we keep that one, right? My reasoned reflection on that is that's, that's pretty good stuff. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wearing two different kinds of garments or planting two different kinds of seeds must have meant something in the Near East in the Bronze Age, but it doesn't mean anything for me. And the church really didn't carry that forward. Jesus didn't talk about it. And so uh, my reflection upon that is that it, it must not be authoritative. It must not speak to the quarantine or to daily living. So that's the method that we've been handed down. Now, lately, and this is really has happened for me in the last, oh, five or six years since I've been returning to the Holy Land frequently, uh, I have an archaeologist pal in Israel, which has just been great, and it's added a new level to my preaching and just the joy of going to Bible lands because he's, one, he's a local, and he can take me to things and show me things uh, that lots of people can't see. And two, he's, he has taught me to appreciate uh, the value of the discipline of archaeology. And I'm beginning to consider that one way that we can read Scripture is to look at it as a piece of archaeology sitting in our laps. Not only is it a book of letters, but it's also, um, it has historic value because it sits in a world that we don't necessarily understand. But if we can understand their world, then, then we too can begin to understand what makes them tick. And it can speak to us in this time of quarantine. I'll give you an example. The little books in the back of the New Testament, they're really not books. They're letters. They're letters from Paul to places that he he established churches or places where he had friends uh, from a business trip that he took around the year 51, and he knew people, and he started a toehold of people around this, this idea that he called the gospel. Now, the gospel sounds like a churchy word. It's really not. It's, it's three ideas. It's, it's we're saved by grace because Paul knew that he was no prize, but God saved him to work for him. He saved him to serve him, saved him to love him uh, for no reason except that he simply was. And so we're saved in that way. We're saved, we're loved by God, and we're saved for service in God's kingdom because we were put here. It's nothing that we earn. It's not a merit badge. It's not anything that we uh, cash in on. It just simply sits out there. I like to say that grace is a lot like grits when you go to a little diner in the South. Grits just come on your plate. You don't order them. And grace is like that. They're like grits. You just, you, just, you just get them. So that was the first idea of the gospel. The second idea is that we're saved in time, that grace comes now. I think especially for us Southerners, we, if we think of faith at all, we think it's something to get us into heaven when we die. And I promise you that's a good thing. And it's, and it's a good thing to hope for and it's a good thing to believe because it's true. But I also think we sell our faith short if we stop right there. I think heaven is right under our noses if we look for it. And it can even be here in times of quarantine. I think we have seen some remarkable uh, 
uh, heavenly activity uh, that has happened between people with a new appreciation for who they are and, and whose they are and a new connection even as we've been apart. So that's the second idea, that God saves us in time. We don't have to wait for heaven till we die. And then the third one is it makes us a new family. If the Bible has one theme from page 1 to page 1001 is this, will you be different in the way that I'm asking you to be different? And different means family. Different means connected. Different means community. Different means safety. Different means love with each other. Remember when they asked Jesus about the first, oh, excuse me, the greatest commandment of all the commandments, and Jesus said, well, actually, there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we love our neighbor as ourself in that way, in that Leviticus 19 way, then we'll be a family. And so grace and time and family make up the gospel. Here's where it's archaeology. The little books in the back, the letters, Roman letters were a common form of correspondence back then. And so uh, there's nothing. We have Roman letters from all over the place and from all, lots of different people. So we can take these letters and we can look into the world, say, of Corinth, and we can understand uh, the ethic behind this gospel or the way that Paul was asking them to be different in light of this gospel. He wasn't asking them to be Jewish people. He was asking them to be different in this gospel kind of way. And so this little piece of Roman archaeology can help us order our lives in a new way in this time of quarantine, for instance. Here's some more archaeology. Uh, I believe, along with my, my Israeli pal and some others, that Genesis 1 through 11 uh, also in a, is a piece of archaeology. It was put down at the time of exile, and I'll say more about the exile in just a little while, but it was put down in a period of time when God's people had lost everything. They lost their homes and their were losing their religion, and so they wanted the children to have an orientation, uh, a, a correct orientation or a correct origin story. So Genesis 1 through 11 is a poem or it's a song. It's not intended to be science, but it does have science in it because it tells the story of our existence as hunter-gatherers into, into living in cities. That's all. Read Genesis 1 through 11. It's our movement from an idyllic existence in, in the garden, if you will. And by the garden, it means simply living uh, dependent on the weather, uh, or following the weather, following whatever food and animals might be in front of them, uh, living in closely protective groups, and moving into a city. You can look at a hole in the ground in Jericho and see a 10,000-year-old wall. Uh, it's the oldest city wall on planet Earth, and you might be tempted to think that that's an upgrade from uh, the hunter-gatherer, wanderer, you know, caveman kind of existence, but in fact, it's not. It's not an upgrade. Uh, living, living this way uh, in a city brought all sorts of misery on people because, one, they didn't have a very diet anymore. Uh, they had a longer work week. Uh, only one person got to be the king. Lots of people had to be the slaves. You had to have an army to guard the wheat. Someone else had an army to attack the wheat. You had to have a wall to store the wheat. And really the first cities it began a cycle of misery that continues to this, to this very, very day. Um, I think it's remarkable that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness of Judea, we're told in the Gospels, right? He's baptized. He goes immediately into the wilderness to be tempted. The only thing in the wilderness of Judea is the oasis of Jericho. Jesus' temptation to walk away uh, from the plan, walk away from what God asked his only son to do or sent his only son to do, happened in the shadow of our original fall. Uh, it's the original sin is the city uh, because people in the city, people become things. So when we're a family in that gospel way, uh, we're stepping away from the city. We're different in the way 
that uh, God asks us to be different. See, the Bible's got a lot to say about who we are uh, in 2020 and even in this time of quarantine. Um, I think that one of the most important things you can do when you look at the Bible is to remember two very, very important backstories. Two backstories. Uh, the Hebrews, who were the original people of the book, and then by extension us through Christ, uh, they believed that if God did something once, God would do it again. The history was absolutely important. And so the most important story that they will tell every year is the story of the Passover, which is the story that God saves them. God saved a bunch of ragtag slaves from the world superpower. It was nothing they could do on their own, and God did it when they cried. So, so here's, here's, the, here's the lesson that they tell every year. When we cry, God hears us, and God will, will save us, and save us even from ourselves, save us when we're in a mess so deep that we can't get out. And so they tell the Passover story year after year, and our own communion words are these words. They're Passover words, they're Exodus words, because we remember that if God did something once, God will do it again, including uh, communion, which I talked about in the first chapter of this podcast. So, so Exodus is a great story. It's a saving story. But let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to feel saved. I would say that the quarantine right now is a time where we don't feel saved from anything. We don't know what the future holds. We can't see around the corner. We don't know uh, what will happen on the other side of this thing with our economy. We don't know how many people will die. Uh, we don't how to know how to keep our, our friends and our neighbors safe except to stay away. And so we're wondering, which brings us to the other backstory. The other backstory is the backstory of exile. Now, it's too complicated for a quick retelling, but the gist is simply this. 600 years before Jesus was born, um, God's people lost everything. The Babylonian king, who was the superpower at the time, had the novel idea, unlike predecessors who would simply burn your town and kill everyone, he had the novel idea of taking the best and brightest of their civilization and moving them far, far away into a super city uh, where they would do uh, his work. And in this sad, um, in this sad existence, they they begin to 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 fear that they'd lost everything. They lost their house of worship. They, they lost their sense of place. They saw, lost their sense of identity. And they got busy. They got busy. They, they wrote down the Bible uh, uh, as we have it. Uh, they, wrote down, uh, they wrote down the scriptures and ordered their stories so that they had national stories like the story of, of Jacob who would wrestle with God and become Israel. They had stories like Moses who would save them. And then they had Genesis 1 through 11 which sort of gives them an origin of the world. I mean, all this stuff came down. What's fascinating about the story of the exile is it's kind of hard to find. Exodus has got great detail. Making straw without bricks, uh, a heavy bondage of the Egyptians. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got the stratified Egyptian labor system that's sort of described in there. With the exile, you just got to find whispers of it, like uh, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was such a forlorn place that Jesus remembered that phrase with his dying breath. And I would submit to you that there are days when we all feel like this. We feel this exile life. This is why it's an important backstory. You see, the Bible, once you cut through the archaeology, you begin to see they're just like us. Well, they lived in a different time with different, with different issues. Here's an example of archaeology. You know, in the Old Testament, when people are chasing golden calves all the time, you know, why, why do they build these golden calves? What's the deal? Well, golden calf was a rain god. 
And that's a city problem. When we were hunter-gatherers, we simply followed the rain. But when you're living, when you stay put in a city, you've got to pray for rain. You've got to wait for it to rain. If it doesn't rain, your crops don't grow and your family will die. And so they built golden calves. And in this time of quarantine, we need to be careful that we don't stray uh, from a God who's constant and faithful and with us, uh, even in the midst of this national calamity. See how the Bible begins to speak uh, to us now. Conclusion is that the Bible is a story of people who knew conflict and got busy. I like to say that the Gospel of Mark was written about the time they learned that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed 600 years before Jesus' birth in the Old Testament was written. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 and much of the New Testament was written besides the letters of Paul. People lose and they get busy. What will we do in this time of loss. My prayer is that we will be Bible people and we will get busy being different in the way that the Bible has always asked us to be different. Let's take care of our folks. Let's participate in the quarantine as best we can. Let's get it done. Let's be faithful. Let's say our prayers. Live as if someone is depending upon us. Pray. Pray hard. Call. Call every day. Call and check on people. Be generous and be kind. And hold your head high, because this will end, and we will emerge in a new day. And the Bible has something to say about that as well. The Bible calls it Easter.